This person died in 2012 at age 82. After his death, someone close to him said he, quote, carried himself with a grace and humility that was an example to us all. I got nothing. Uh, no, I got, I got nothing here. Alec Guinness. Not Alec Guinness. He was a quiet, private man and at heart an engineer. Didn't Leslie Nielsen die right around then? <laughs> James Watson. Not James Watson. His most famous achievement lasted two hours and 19 minutes. Okay. <laughs> that could be anything. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe it's a movie or something? Could be a, like a space flight or something. John Glenn. Not John Glenn. He was part of a mission that capped a tumultuous and consequential decade. Okay. Oh my gosh. I still have nothing. I'm so sorry. Okay. This one one should help. He made history on July 20th, 1969 as the commander of the Apollo 11 spacecraft. Oh. Neil Armstrong. Neil Armstrong? Neil Armstrong. Today's dead celebrity is Neil Armstrong. Welcome to Famous and Gravy. My name is Michael Osborne. My name is Amit Kapoor. And on this show, we go through a series of categories about multiple aspects of a famous person's life. We want to figure out the things in life that we would actually desire and ultimately answer the big question, would I want that life? Today, Neil Armstrong died 2012, age 82. You said that with a big smile on your face. <laughs> he has a smile on his face. I think that's why. I, I like think that. it's also self-satisfied that we chose Neil fucking Armstrong. I All like right. that. Category one, grading the first line of their obituary. Neil Armstrong, who made the, quote, giant leap for mankind, close quote, as the first human to set foot on the moon, died on Saturday. He was 82. I think that's what he wanted. Yeah. From all I've learned, I think that's the obituary he uh, is kind of okay with. Don't pry too much further. I think that there's something to that. It's nice and succinct. It doesn't have any personality whatsoever to it. All it says is he made a giant leap for mankind as the first human to set foot on the moon. Full stop. I think I'm saying good, too. There's room, obviously, for a lot more here. It's the most demonstrative, I think, first line we've come across. It actually has some... The cow jumped over the fence. Yeah. (laughs) Neil Armstrong (laughs) set foot on on the the moon. moon. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting that there's like zero context. But publicly, he doesn't want to be known for anything else. So I think it's fitting. It's almost like they knew what he wanted. Well, okay, wait a second. It's like, I want the rest of my life to be private. Okay, fine. But... Since when is the first line of the obituary about what our dead celebrity would have wanted? I feel like this is actually the first time we're talking about that. I mean, the question of would this person have taken issue? But perhaps the obituary writer is just sitting there. It's like, oh, fuck, what else do I know about Neil Armstrong? Or what else do I need to say? Yeah, I guess that's it. End of sentence. He was 82. I mean, certainly there is a uh, show-don't-tell aspect to it, right? Like, had he wanted to be known for more, there was opportunity for that. So maybe in its succinctness and its, you know, lack of description, it's actually great. Yeah. Because not only is it what he would have wanted, but it really is and maybe all that should be said. Before we grade, uh, let's talk about first human. Oh, interesting. Did you Did you not think about that? I didn't. I'm glad you pointed it out that they didn't say first man, that they said first human. Yes. Yeah. That their 
could have been other life forms that were on the moon. I'm not seeing that. I didn't read that. I, I read First Human as being, let's take gender out of it, because his famous quote is gendered, right? Oh, I didn't. That's, yeah. that's oh, why, okay. that's why oh, I that's thought you good. were drawing attention to. Oh, very to. good 2012 New York Times. Yeah, that's what I thought you were drawing attention to, is the fact that they, it, you know, the first man... I wish I was. Yeah. I wish that's what was going through my head. No, but what was going through your mind is uh, other life forms. I was saying they're leaving it open. This, this obituary writer was leaving it open for the possibility. Yes. Yeah. Of other life forms that preceded Neil Armstrong in both to be inclusive of uh, the step he took represented um, all of humanity. Yes. Even if, it, even if it happened in the patriarchy. <laughs> yes. So... What do you give it? This is in my upper echelon. I'm giving it an eight. Giving it an eight. I think that's a great number. That feels pretty close. So what, is it missing things? I guess we haven't talked about. Well, we talked yet. about that. Is that like he? They could have made the effort to throw in some personal anecdotes. I, I think I applaud the. I think I'm going higher. I, this may be the first time I've ever given anything a ten. I think it's perfect. You're applauding the brevity. I am. Which However, is the, the reason we choose the New York Times obituary is the way that they can take more than just the singular fact of their life, there which is, they did not do for Shirley Temple. Right. No, there is no simple formula. What I love about this is the way it is talking about the act. It's not saying anything about the man, but like the man's act is all that matters. And the way it's framed here, the way it's described, I like the way that it is the first human. I like the quote attribution and it just speaks for itself. What more do you need? Anything else would feel shoehorned, a distraction from the significance of what this is. And this is going to be remembered for forever. Yeah. Look, look it, it is entirely possible that 500 years from now, the only person from the 20th century who's remembered is Neil Armstrong. In terms of a first line of an obituary, 10 out of 10 for me. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Tuck in your shirt, tighten your tie, and move onwards. <laughs> well said uh i think he would like that too yeah all, right. all right category two five things i love about you here amit and i work together to come up with at least five reasons why we should be talking about this person and why we might love them you want to go or you want me to go i want you to go okay i wrote down to go somewhere no one has ever gone before and i was very deliberate when i thought about that i thought about trying to say adventurer or pioneer or explorer but it is actually about setting foot somewhere nobody's ever set foot before which is tied up in exploration right but to to go to a place of like true unbelievable original discovery i i know it's what he's known for but it's also something i want to do both inside and outside my life i want to go places i want to see the most incredible places, mostly on planet Earth. I'm not so attracted to space travel. But I also want to arrive in completely undiscovered territory as an individual. And this is obvious, I guess, um, yeah. that this is the thing to know about him. So I'm, I'm coming out of the gate with the single most obvious thing about him. Yeah. May I? Uh, this is not traditional for a five things I love about you, but I, I want to kind of disagree with that. Interesting. That... Uh, disagree the fact of it or that it's something that no that is loved? the fact that that is what is required to um in order for it to be desirable to go to a physical space that nobody has been before so like in a lot of philosophy yeah you know they'll say everything is impermanent nothing has actually ever happened before sure this exact moment with this exact intersection of people and time and weather and whatnot has never happened before i get that yes and it, there, there is there is no two moments in time that are identical yeah so i'm saying if perhaps if you did not covet going somewhere that no one had ever gone before then you are forever living in places that no one has ever gone before and you michael osborne could be a happier person so i agree with that and uh and i am a happy person um look i think that there are in some ways major problems with the accomplishment of having gone to the moon and i, I want to talk about that more as we or i don't know maybe this is the place to talk about them and that accomplishment is this sort of sense that nature and the planet earth and then 
other planets are for conquest and for lore exploitation and for you know what the human species was meant to do is spread around the solar system and eventually the universe and i'm not so sure that's true i actually think the main lesson is that the planet we live on is an incredibly special planet and all the astronauts whoever went to space will tell you the same thing they have the experience of like you get out there and you don't look out you look back you see earth in a whole new light and i think that's the, the global lesson that's the incredible lesson of space travel that said i i do think that the symbolism of what it means to step foot somewhere where no person has ever stepped foot before that i i want to do that i don't necessarily want to walk on the moon but to see somebody walk on the moon reminds me that every step we take in our waking lives in this ever-changing world is a special step. So is that the symbolism you refer yes, to? Yes, that's right. There, there's something about what this step means. I, I love it. I, I don't necessarily know that it's something I want to do, but it's something I love. Yeah. Okay. That's it. All right. You take number two. So I'm going to go unintentionally funny. Oh, interesting. Uh, interesting. And I do think that's a great desirable thing. And I'm going to tell you the quote that uh, I'm going to highlight that with. Because he was, you know, for lack of a better word, he was pretty much a square guy. <laughs> but yes. when he, um, and he gave, he rarely gave interviews. Right. You know, he rarely appeared um, in the media. He did do some public things around advertising and stuff like that. But he um, was very media shy. Yeah. yeah. But then when he did, uh, he gave him an interview. I don't, I think he gave a slew of interviews sometime around when he did this 60 Minutes thing. Yeah, this is when his biography, his authorized, you know, signed a contract biography came out to promo it. He gave an interview to 60 Minutes, which was the first time in decades that he had granted a single person an yes. interview. So in that time when he was describing the moon, he describes the curvature of it. But then he says, it's an interesting place to be. I recommend it. What did it look like to you, to your naked eye? It's an interesting uh, place to be. It's, I recommend it. <laughs> like, that's hilarious, Neil. <laughs> I think that's sort of intentional. Uh, is it? I think so. I mean, I think... Uh, I, he couldn't have intended to be that funny. I don't... No, I don't, I don't think he meant it to be as funny as it actually is. And I don't think he's like... But it seems like he has that. He has like that substitute teacher unintentional funniness. Yeah. It's like junior high football coach. Like, these are the types of things that I think of. <laughs> When I think of that style of humor. It's good. Uh, all right. Should I go on to number three? Yes. I wrote down modesty, but I also wrote it down with a question mark because it kind of drives me crazy in him. Like the way he is so humble and so modest. The about, degree of the modesty. Oh, my God. Like this man will not take credit for taking the first step and, until he's forced to do so. And I, I don't think it's false modesty i think it's genuine but i wanted to talk to you about that whether that's something one that has evolved that 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 was a virtue you know in 1969 uh when he stepped foot on the moon in a way that it's not the same kind of virtue now and then two i wanted to ask you what you think about it in terms of desirability because he's he's absolutely modest. There's no question. He about is absolutely it. modest, and yeah. I, I had a version of that written down for one of my five things. So uh, your first point was: Is it unique to that time? Can it no longer exist? Not unique, but was it more virtuous? Has it faded in terms of its? You know how much we oh. admire somebody who's modest. Is it, modesty no longer virtuous? Yeah, in the age of social media, when everybody's a self promoter, my gut reaction is to say, you know, it's not a virtuous thing to be modest. But at the same time, I hate social media, and a lot of people do, and I hate a lot of, you know, I I, I, I think I still admire modesty. I think it's more virtuous Interesting. now because okay. of that, because there's so many opportunities to take credit, so many opportunities to um, be a self promoter and. Yeah, to, to raise your external uh, value of yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I don't think so. I think it's actually the opposite. Okay. Uh, either way, it's admirable. Is it desirable? That was your second part of yeah, the question. Yeah, I really struggle with that. I don't know, because it's... Like, if you set foot on the fucking moon, right? Like, you know, on, on one hand, I admire... Take credit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I admire the modesty to a point, but at some point, like Neil, you step foot on the foot. You were the first guy, correct? But there, and there's there's a disservice there, a little bit, in my opinion, because because we need uh, we need heroes. Yes, there is this quality about him that I guess I'm going to say this in a somewhat derogatory way. There's a certain engineering personality out there. Not all engineers have this personality, but some engineers 
there is a reputation these days, particularly software engineers, for being a little bit antisocial. There's something about him that reminds me of that. And I and I think it's actually about the way, you know, next level technology is deployed. I mean, and I've actually I've really been thinking about like how far back in history does that go? The stereotype of the antisocial engineer. I don't I don't know like antisocial is a little bit of a strong word to describe Neil Armstrong. I'm not sure that's 100% appropriate. I think he did have friends, but he's he's not personable, he's not warm and he's damn sure not emotional. Yeah, it's uh, a military modesty, right? Yeah. And he, he was uh, in the navy. Uh, in the navy, yeah. And that's what it reminds Fighting me. It's yeah. a military modesty. Yeah, yeah. I, yes, I think that that there's some. But I, I see that. That's that's a good way of putting it. Actually, all the nods to all the other people who made it possible are absolutely necessary, and I'm more grateful that he's that rather than he's pumping his chest saying, "I did it, you motherfuckers," or yeah. whatever. And so obviously, if you, you're going to skew in one direction, he skewed in the better direction. But the, but there was Correct. an overshoot. Yeah, because he was he was so adamant about just this. You know, I was just the right right place, right time. Yeah, type of person. It's the culmination of 400,000 people's work, and it just so happened to be this mission in this year and this time when I was the commander. Could have been anybody, and no, it couldn't have. Then and, and and we need and we as a society want to understand why it couldn't have been just anybody, and we want a little bit more from you, Neil. Yeah, I I agree. So I'm going to add one more to modesty. And what I was going to say, the word I was going to use was considerate, Mm. as well as the thing I I was going to put it was the five things I love about him. I like that. Uh, And that was uh, more of the post NASA years Uh when he went initially into teaching. He was a professor and he said that he chose the University of Cincinnati to teach at, and I believe he was in like the aeronautical engineering yeah, yeah, department, this... but he said the reason he chose that, which was not his own alma mater, was because they had a very small engineering department. Yes. And so nobody would, or so fewer people would feel like they're getting their toes stepped on because this famous astronaut is now teaching there. Yeah. I actually have his decision to be a professor as for the 10 years or so after, uh, the moon landing on my list. I think you can take that as a number. Uh, as a number four. As a number four. Yeah. Okay. It's a separate thing. Yeah. No. I well, I like that he had all these choices, right? I mean, for him, there is obviously, you know, he had some fame and notoriety because NASA was, you know, had a pretty good PR campaign throughout the '60s, so he was kind of known, but not like he was known after he became the first person to step foot on the moon. Yes. Right. So there is a before and after in his life in terms of I, I sometimes talk about the rocket ship of fame. In this case, it's incredibly literal. Yeah. Right. Like, obviously, like he took a rocket ship of fame to the moon. There was a lot of things he could have done uh, in, in the immediate years after. I mean, he was and he did eventually go on to more sort of lucrative opportunities serving on boards of, you know, corporate boards and eventually did advertisements for Chrysler, among other things. I mean, he made money, finally, and we'll get to that later. But I like that he was looking for a place to continue to engage in learning and share what he had learned. And and I also like that it wasn't, you know, an Ivy League school. It was University of Cincinnati, and it was because he had a friend there, basically. I just like that as the next career move. I, I need to go somewhere where thought, intelligence, knowledge is valued. I, I'd like to be a professor. This wasn't immediate, by the way. He did do a little work for NASA afterwards. Yeah, he was called back, right? Like at Apollo 13, after that one, and after the Challenger explosion, he was sort of called back for the commissions. Correct, but it was kind of a desk job. It became very clear he wasn't going back into space. But let's get to number five. What do you got for number five? Uh, I think this required less discussion, but it is the determination from a young age. Uh, this is a theme we've talked about, you know, I think uh, this was a George Michael theme that we talked about. But the specific fact with Neil Armstrong was pilot's license preceded driver's license. Yes. He got his pilot's <laughs> license before he could drive a car. Yeah. I think that some of that has to um, do with where he grew up on, you know, rural Ohio, where there's a lot of like prop planes that were part of, you know, growing crops. And so it like practically made more sense to become a pilot before you got a driver's license. He was apparently his uh, first wife said he was not a good driver, like for <laughs> for all the you know his ability to steer uh, a, a plane or a rocket ship. Yeah, uh, you wouldn't want to be in a car with him. Yeah, he's going to overdo the turns. Yeah, <laughs> probably. And who knows where his mind's at? Yes. Uh, all right. So let's recap. That's a pretty good list of five. Uh, one, I said to Boldigo, where no man has gone. 
before. Not quite. I didn't quote um, Captain Kirk, but or Star Trek for that matter. But yes, to go somewhere no one has ever gone before. I guess I did kind of say that. Uh, I so, went unintentionally funny for two. Uh, unintentionally funny. And uh, we had a good discussion about modesty. Yep. Uh, then there was the decision to become a professor. Yep. And finally, determination. Yeah, which was signified by pilot's license before driver's license. Pretty good. All right. Category three. Malkovich, Malkovich. This category is named after the movie Being John Malkovich, in which people take a little portal into John Malkovich's mind, and they can have a front row seat right behind his eyes. What do you got? Uh, I went very different on this one. Interesting. So we talked a little bit, um, we talked a lot about how he shunned fame. Right. Okay. And um, he didn't want to be a hero. So what I wondered is, so in 1969, he became an incredible hero, right? They, you know, they came back to a ticker tape parade and a world tour and so forth. Insane world tour. Insane world tour. It's like millions of people in the streets, quarter, you know, I mean, everywhere he went and all around the world. Yes. So fast forward 30 years, uh, another hero named Armstrong emerged in the United States. Lance Armstrong. Lance Armstrong. Wow. So let's just choose 2004, right? Neil still had eight years left in his life. Yeah. Uh, that's when the yellow bracelets came out. And I want to know if he saw the rise of Lance Armstrong. I don't think he lived long enough to see the fall of Lance Armstrong. Yeah, okay. So anyway, if he saw that, and if he thought, ooh, there's another Armstrong. <laughs> I don't have to worry about carrying the mantle of being a hero. And this is a relief to me because I am no longer the number one Armstrong. <laughs> that's your Malkovich moment? Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's uh, it. I don't know what the hell to make of that one. Uh, well, I want to know what he saw when he saw that yellow bracelet that said Livestrong. It didn't say Armstrong, but we all knew who it was for. Yeah. And if it was like... God damn it, Lance. This was my territory, or thank you, Lance. Um, that's pretty good. So that's my Malkovich. All right. All right, yours. I, I got to say, I had a little bit of an experience getting ready for this episode where I probably got more excited about space travel than I think I've ever been. I've never been a space nerd. So I read Neil Armstrong's biography, which is fairly dense and very comprehensive. and. So I love Star Trek, but Star Trek's not good space travel. Most science fiction that takes place in space doesn't adhere to the lack of gravity in space. There's some sort of magic gravity, you know, simulation on on the ship that allows all the actors and actresses to, you know, walk around in normal gravity. So it's really only the movies where they take the reality of the lack of gravity very seriously that I feel like that begins to give the emotional you know, makes you think about what it's like. And the movies that really leap out to me are, are the movie Gravity, which I saw in 3D, which I really enjoyed that the first time I saw it. And it's a hokey movie, but like, boy, you felt the weightlessness, right? Yeah. And then there's another, I mean, 2001 to some extent. They're, they're not that many, though. Okay, so okay. I'm getting to Malkovich. I know that was a big wind-up. The moment I'm most curious about is when the lunar shuttle escapes Earth's gravity... But before it gets to its lunar orbit, like before it gets to the moon, on the way there, like on the way to a great adventure, one of the things uh, I think Mike Collins, who was uh, one of the astronauts on Apollo 11. The one that didn't actually get to walk. Correct. The yeah. one who had to man the ship while Buzz and Neil were out, you know, for two hours and 20 minutes on the lunar surface. One of the things I think he's the one who said this is like, there's no telephone poles, you know, there's no landscape that where you're marking the speed, you know, at which you're going in space, you're traveling some incredible speed on your way to the moon, right? This is an incredibly risky mission. You've made it past one part of it. And those moments like days and hours where you're like approaching just the anticipation the fear, but that like at that point, there's no way you can ignore the like sort of bubbling giddiness. In the Joan Rivers episode, you had an interesting moment, Malkovich moment, where Johnny Carson hung up on her, and you said, you know, the highest high and the lowest low at the same time. That stuck with me because to feel two contradictory things, or maybe they're not contradictory, I don't know. Anticipation 
and, and excitement and perhaps elation and fear, the space shuttle is hurtling through empty black dark space away from Earth and toward the moon. And it's not experiencing the gravity of either of those places. And you, on some level, know the significance of what this is going to be. And you're trying to mark time and you're trying to manage your own emotions and expectations. And it's incredibly terrifying and it's incredibly exciting. And you're hanging out with these two other guys. Okay. That's the moment I want. Nice. That do anything for you? No, I'm not a space guy. Fuck me. <laughs> Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Uh, all right, let's move on. Okay. Category four, love and marriage. How many marriages? Also, how many kids? And is there anything public about these relationships? Okay. Uh, so his first wife, Janet, they were married in 1956. Neil was 26 years old at the time. She's four years younger. College sweetheart, right? Kind of. I think he met her through a fraternity friend at Purdue, but I think he was actually graduated um, and she had just started, but kind of, they got together around college. Okay. Yes. They were separated in 1990 and officially divorced in 1994. So when they were separated, Neil was 60, they divorced, he was 64. His second wife, Carol Held Knight, they met uh, in 1992. They got married in 1994. Uh, they were together until Neil's death in 2012. Let's see. She was 15 years uh, younger. He was 64 when they got remarried. And yeah, together until he was dead at 82. Three children, two boys, uh, one daughter, Karen, uh, who dies at age two and a half uh, and died, I think, on the anniversary of his six year anniversary with Janet. So, so we're at approximately seven years before the historic mission. That's right. Is when he lost his daughter. That's right. Okay. And yeah, two and a half. And she was a middle child. Yeah. And he never said a whole hell of a lot about it. He went right back to work. After his daughter died, he did have a couple of accidents uh, or misjudgments. This is during his time as a test pilot. And there was certainly speculation that the emotional pain of having lost a child was affecting his judgment. Um, and he basically literally worked. He didn't work through that with a therapist. He literally worked, you know, threw himself into his work. Yeah. Um, but there was never doesn't sound like any heart to heart with janet uh again the daughter died you know basically at the same time as their anniversary like their wedding anniversary yeah so every year that came up yeah you know every year that came up yeah i just i i i can't help but just wonder how much of his choice to be somewhat reclusive had something to do with that i don't know i think he was like that before yeah what what I often hear, what what we believe is that's that's some of the deepest pain you can ever feel is losing a small child. I have a very close friend 
who lost a son to cancer at age four. As a guy I talked to a lot. And one of the things he told me once is, I, I remember saying, I can't imagine. And he said, yeah, that's right. You can't imagine. So don't even try. Don't even waste your energy. Yeah. Um, because anything you imagine, it's worse than that. Uh, and no matter how much you try to imagine it, you'll never get there. And I took that to heart. I honestly took that as a pass that I didn't need to sit there and try and imagine it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it's the worst pain you can experience. So what what happened at the end of that? Or wh why did why did that marriage end in the early nineties? She calls it emotional distance. So Janet, his first wife, did agree to participate in the biography. So she she sat down for interviews with the author James Hansen, and he had very wonderful things to say about her and the acknowledgments and her willingness to do that. Uh I think that there was decades of emotional distance. The marriage fails after, you know, 38 years. Yeah. You know, I don't know what the hell to make of that, man. I will say I learned that of the, this was something in the, in the book of the 21, you know, men who went to the moon, because they were all men of those 21 marriages, 13 ended in separation or divorce. The author has a, a comment about, you know, NASA probably should have invested in marriage counselors, you know. Well, I think there's also a certain selfishness and recklessness that makes you become an astronaut. I think that's right. It was test pilots who were, you know, playing with their lives. I mean, living in and that like Neil Armstrong in his 20s and 30s is surrounded by an incredible amount of death. Like there are friends dying all the time. Mm -hmm. um, test pilots and accidents go wrong at NASA. And like it's sort of striking how many young people he knew who died. Yeah, it doesn't seem good for a marriage. I mean, he finds somebody who he falls in love with, Neil Armstrong does in the mid-90s, and is with that person for the rest of his life. But I think he does follow a very, I don't know, common pattern of becoming a little bit more sentimental in old age. You know, he's asked about his daughter in that 60 minutes interview and you know there's just not a lot to say hey, but you could also see him still sort of well up some people when they're hit with a tragedy like that they pour themselves into their work yeah it's it's difficult for me to to know uh i uh i thought the best thing for me to do in that situation was to uh continue with my work keep things as normal as as i could and uh, try as hard as I could not to uh, not to have it affect my ability to do useful things. I don't think that pain ever goes away. Yeah, I don't think that pain ever goes away. So I don't know. Is there a lesson in the marriages? I don't know. When I got married, I sat down with the the, the preacher who married us, and he wanted to have a drink with me and Allison beforehand. And he he said, "I'm glad you're getting married. It's a beautiful thing. Let me tell you." He said something like half of marriages fail these days. The most common reasons are infidelity. Um, God, I can't remember what else. But one of them was loss of a child. I think it's very hard for it's it kind of incredible that that they stayed together this long. I think part of it is I obviously she felt a tremendous amount of pressure. A lot of the, the NASA astronaut wives did to sort of put on a good face like the NASA PR, you know, machinery, I think, was added pressure. Um, you know, to look like all American or whatever. I, I don't know what to make of it. I don't know what to make of it. It's 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 bizarre to me the timing of it. That's the thing I can't wrap that my head around. That does seem mysterious. And yeah. you read you read the autobiography, and still you can't. Yeah, I mean, I, towards the end, it sounds like she's making some gestures to try. She's like, "We should take a vacation." There's one moment that sticks out to me where she asks for a, a vacation, and he can't schedule it for a year. And it and it doesn't go very well. I mean, there's they try and buy a second home, and there's just not much attention to it. And at at some point, she says, "I've had enough." Um, but the timing of when she decides she's had enough, I, I don't understand. And I try to get a little bit more information on her and the kids. I think that he is fundamentally an emotionally distant man. I think he may have learned that that came at some cost later in life. You sort of see a little bit of evidence of that. Yeah. Um, this is shrouded in mystery for me. What, what to make of the marriage and family life? I, I, it looks mostly sad to me, Amit. 
That's yeah. what I see. For, for a marriage to go this long and then end, and for there to be a death of a child early on, on your anniversary, I have to, th when I close my eyes and picture that household, I picture sadness, tension, um, and, and emotional distance. And that's why she ultimately divorced him. Yeah. But it seems like he found happiness in the end. Yeah, I think so. Shall we move on? Yep. Next category. Category five, net worth. What did you find? I found eight million. That's what I found too. Seems like a perfect number. I it's agree. Just nice and like Neil like. I agree. I was totally good with it. I saw it and I, and I, I actually smiled. Yeah. And the sources of income were not, I mean, I don't, the actual flat salary of an astronaut, I don't think is that great. You're like a grade 14 government employee or something. No, the wealth came um, later and it and came somewhat reluctantly. Yeah. Like, from the boards. Yes. Right. He was on the boards of United Airlines, yeah. uh, the Taft Corporation, which very interesting, owned Hanna-Barbera. If we go back to oh, the Yogi Berra controversy. And uh, he did pitch ads for Chrysler. He was on their board as well. Yeah. And then some other companies that were less brand names, but kind of more engineering focused. Well, and certainly the speaking engagements were there when he wanted them. But, um, but those were, he rarely took those he up. He rarely though. took those. Oh, well, he was, he, he spoke. He just didn't speak. He didn't speak to journalists that much. When he spoke, he would do press conferences. He wouldn't talk to a journalist one-on-one. -on -one. That okay. was, that was a big part of his boundary, but he, he had some media engagements. Okay. Um, but he shied away from them. But yeah, eight million. I'm good with it. I love it. In fact, I don't even think we should talk about it that much. Yeah, it's a nice fitting shirt. All right, category six: Simpsons, Saturday Night Live, or Hall of Fame. This category is a measure of how famous a person is. We include both guest appearances on SNL or The Simpsons as well as impersonations. So I've got this lined up here: Saturday Night Live. There is in 1999 an SNL short directed by Adam McKay where it's called Neil Armstrong, the Ohio years. They get some actor I didn't even recognize. And it, you basically, he's like going through a mundane day. Actually, the whole skit starts off with him hitting rewind over and over of his first step on the moon <laughs> like uh, in front of the TV. And then his wife's like, go to the grocery store. And the whole time he's like, I could go to the real grocery store. I walked on the moon. And it's just that. Over this feels and over. very Uncle Rico to yeah. me. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. So he's on Saturday Night Live. He never made an appearance there. Simpsons, similar thing. He was impersonated. There's a uh, an episode where there's some sort of like it's it, uh, it's called Springfield Biomon Sci-Fi Con. So it's like a Springfield's Comic Con. Okay. Um, and he's sitting there signing autographs, and nobody's going to him because they're going to other booths. And he's like, I need to. No, he's firing his agent, uh, saying there's one small step. This is one small step to firing your ass, which is funny. Um, and but he didn't do any voices. Didn't work. do any voices. No. Buzz Aldrin did, though, I think. I think that's right. I started to look at that. I forgot to follow up on it, but I think Buzz did. Do you remember the Buzz Aldrin Punky Brewster episode? I don't. Uh, I remember <laughs> it clearly. It was after the Challenger um, that uh, Punky sort of loses. She loses faith. Ah, because uh, she had like gotten very excited about space, and um, uh, somehow Mr. Warnemont gets Buzz Aldrin to come up to her in her race car bed and like cheer her up and tell her not to lose hope. That's sweet. Yeah. So yeah, the, I mean, doesn't have a Hollywood Walk of Fame, or I mean, but he's he's got honorary doctorates and accolades galore. It is well. It's kind of funny, right? The the Hollywood Walk of Fame is like the handprint on the cement. Yeah, he's got. Uh, a, he's, he's got, got a, a footprint on the moon. He's got a, a footprint on the moon. He's got a footprint on the moon. Um, so I I I think we can say he's famous. All right, and our last of the easily knowable categories, category seven, over under. In this category, we look at the generalized life expectancy for the year they were born to see if they beat the house odds, and as a measure of grace. Neil Armstrong was born nineteen thirty. Life expectancy for men in 1930, for American men in 1930, was 58. Neil was 82 when he died. He beat it by 24 years. Yeah. And I as would be expected. I mean, he was fit. He was... Correct. Yeah. Although, so this is sort of interesting. There is, uh, there is a doctor who has claimed that space travel may have uh, affected the heart condition that eventually killed them. There's some mystery around how exactly he died. It was um, complications from a, a heart condition. So he had a... It, and and there, he was even in contact with the biographer around the days of his death. But the family has been really mum on exactly what happened. But it's a heart condition of some sort. There is some science out there that suggests 
that as a result of going to the moon and back, he may have acquired a unique heart condition. I don't. I would imagine just. I, it's not hard for me to believe that. I don't understand the you know physiology of it all. Um. Anyway, I think it, you know he looks pretty good for most of those years. I think as a measure of grace, you know, lived and, and I think he lived gracefully. I mean, he made his own life choices, but it did yeah. did seem like there was grace to it. So that's about right. Okay. Let's pause for a word from our sponsor. Hey, folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report. And you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Michael, I'm thinking of a book. Is it a biography? Uh, it is not. Uh, something in the humor section. No. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to need more information. What are you thinking of? You don't read? Of course I read. I read all the time. I've got like three books on at but, least. So you have no guesses. About what you're reading? Yes. No, you know I what I'm thinking of. Oh. <laughs> what book you're thinking of? Great Gatsby. That's not a bad guess, but it's not correct. You try me. What do you mean? I got to think of a book and you need to try and guess what it is? Yeah. Okay, I've got a book. Uh, Catcher in the Rye. Motherfucker! How did you do that? Because I shop at Half Price Books regularly. <laughs> that was incredible. Uh, do you know what? Half Price Books is celebrating 50 years of buying and selling books, movies, and music. Half Price Books has 125 stores, and you can find out more at hpb.com. Was that really correct? <laughs> no. <laughs> but it was more fun to pretend like it was. Most of what we've learned thus far has been relatively easy to obtain public information. The next series of categories is a little bit more speculative. We want to try and get inside and figure out what it would have actually have been like to have been this person. The first of the inner life categories is man in the mirror. Did he like his reflection or not? What do you got, Ahmet? Yes. I think he was a, he was very buttoned up. Like he looked like an astronaut, right? Just the, every every image we had of like the space program, of just you know uh, broad shouldered, perfectly groomed, tucked in shirt, tie, just handsome and presentable. That was the early Neil Armstrong. But even like you see the photographs and the videos and the rare appearances in the later years, I think he just still carried himself well. He just seemed jolly. He still kind of had that same look of just you know sort of tucked in and proper. And this is how. Uh, this is how an American serviceman should look. And I think he was proud of that. I went, no. Okay. And I went for it because I think the man is scared to look inward. He's mm. got a big, broad smile. And you're right. When you describe the physique and the photogenetic qualities, you know, I agree with all of those things. That moment in the mirror where you make eye contact with yourself. Yeah. I think this guy is scared of himself inside on some level. I think that there is hard to know i'm projecting a lot here and i'm making a lot of his yeah. you know in, intense desire to remain incredibly private and to not have the world define his life and what it meant and what it's going to be but the emotional distance thing here i think even plays at the superficial level of what it means like to look at yourself in the mirror so i went no shall i go on to the next category yeah all right next category outgoing message like Men in the Mirror, we want to know how they felt about the sound of their own voice. If they heard it on an answering machine, if they actually recorded their outgoing voicemail. What do you got? And this is, I want to clarify what we uh, kind of talked about last time. It's both sound of their own voice, and we've kind of expanded it to, are they the type of person that would put their own voice out there? That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, I went no. Yeah. And my reasoning was the sound bite. He's got this soundbite that's just what he is known for that's been played how many tens of millions of times. Yeah. Um, you're just sick of it. 
Yeah, I think sick of it. And especially it's like kind of inaccurate too. Uh, Yeah. So I'm thinking, no, I'm thinking he is in the other way, though. He is the type of person that would definitely say, you've reached the house of Neil Armstrong at my dairy farm in Ohio. (laughs) Please leave a message. I think he is that type of guy. But the sound of his own voice part? No. Yeah, I, I went no as well. And basically for the reasons we said before, I think I, you know, do need to back off and give not back off necessarily but i do think he is like a leader i think he's something of a charismatic leader i don't think you get to be the commander of you know a lunar space shuttle or a mission to you know the moon without being somebody who people look up to and admire and see for their smarts and see for their diligence and their i don't know careful consideration of things so in as much as I'm describing him as emotionally unavailable, he had other incredible attributes and incredible qualities. And I think he probably, and I, the reason I bring this up here is that I think he, I say he didn't like to talk. I don't think he liked media engagements, but he did have a big broad smile. And I think he had friends. I don't, I don't, think, yeah. he, I don't think he was antisocial totally, but I think that those friendships just had very strict boundaries. That's what I see. So that's outgoing message. A next category, regrets, public or private? Let's see. On the public front, uh, when he went to be a professor at Cincinnati, he made a decision early on not to ask NASA for any kind of research funding. He later regretted that. He said, why why shouldn't I have used my connections there to support an engineering program here? Yeah, they owe you one, Neil. Totally. Uh, And he regretted that. he also does say in that 60 Minutes interview that he regretted just how much time he spent at work, at the office. And uh, and it, this comes up in the context of a this, lot of things. This is in the post-Apollo years, in the professor years. That's correct. This okay. is, this is it, it's what it sounds like he's referring to, but I think it's his whole life. I mean, you know, the, the interviewer asks him, do you have any regrets? And he's sort of just like, yeah, I, you know, I was away a lot. And, I, and I, he blames a kind of travel schedule, but... He's pretty clear that there's some regret about inattention to the family. Was it a difficult balance for you to maintain both sides of your life? The one thing I regret was that my my work required an enormous amount of my time and a lot of travel, and I didn't get to spend the time I would have liked with my family as they were growing up. It's kind of a lot less fun when they're asked the question and we know what they said. Yeah, I know. Well, that's public. I mean, yeah. on, do you have anything more on the public front? Um, no, no, but I've got some good private ones. Okay, I've got, well, you go ahead. I've got a couple, but let's hear yours. Well, I think this is what we kind of hinted at earlier is is not being a hero, not being a space cowboy yeah. for the rest of his life. So this moment in 1969 that uh, united the country and then united the world. Yeah. Right. And then uh, fragmentation just continues on and on and on from there as it's going to happen. The country becomes more polarized. The world becomes, uh, you know, more separate, more at odds. All this is going to happen anyway. Yeah. Right. I fully believe all this is going to happen anyway. But you being that single uniter of that 1969 moment and going on the world parade, if you stick around more. You're just a little bit more of that glue of this sort of America won the space race. Yeah. You know, we as a world made it to the moon. And I think it's important to just kind of take that message and live it out. I agree And with that. I don't know if I he... I agree with that. I'm really I'm impressed by that argument. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, we, we, this was, we said this at the beginning of the episode. Like, you know, we, I think we want more neil armstrong heroes yeah um and i think he had it like he was such a straight-laced guy yeah and if he was just a little bit more in the light and i don't know what that career looks like like i have no idea what that public life looks like but i think it could have been impactful and it could have you know maybe just been a little bit more of that national and international clue yeah a little more lighthearted, even you know i mean it's such an embodiment of dreams and fantasies yeah you know yep um I really agree with that. I don't know if it's an actual regret, but maybe he was frustrated with himself for not being able to do more of that. And so who knows what's going on in that inner dialogue, you know? Yeah, especially with the state of the space program now. Yeah. 
All right, I got a couple quick on the private regrets. He didn't get Buzz to take a picture of him. All of the photographs that exist on the are moon actually Buzz Aldrin. are actually Neil taking pictures of Buzz Aldrin, except for a reflection picture of Buzz's face mask. They weren't down there very long, and they didn't think to do it, and there are stills from the video feed, but uh, yeah, there's no like standalone pictures, and they were both like, oh shit, we should have done that. Because um, everyone assumes the planting the flag is Neil Armstrong picture. No, that's Buzz. But it's Buzz Aldrin. Yeah. Because um, they show it, and then they play the Neil Armstrong quote as they show it so yeah, often. Yeah, yeah. So there's that. This isn't a huge one, but so the conspiracy theories that we never landed on the moon basically happen at, at the exact moment the whole thing goes down in 1969. So those theories go back a long time. He was confronted by, there was one very famous conspiracy theorist who confronted several astronauts buzz aldrin are you aware of that of buzz aldrin getting confronted in 2003 at some event and he punches the guy no oh it's a great video uh because the guy's saying like will you put your hand on this bible and swear that you landed on the moon why don't you swear on the bible that you walked on the moon you really like it you're the one who said you walked on the moon when you didn't Calling the kettle black if I ever thought of it. Saying Will I misrepresented myself. Get away myself? from me. You're a coward and a liar and a thief. There's some event where Neil Armstrong is speaking and this guy barges in and creates a commotion. Security kind of ushers him out and security ushers Neil Armstrong off the stage. And he regretted not standing up and saying, This guy is. It's not just full of shit, but like he is also trying to say that the U.S. government took your tax dollars and now he's, what, how does he put this? Uh, had I the opportunity to run that episode over in my life, I wouldn't have allowed my company, because this is at a, a corporate speaking event, I wouldn't have allowed my company people to usher me out of the room. I would have just talked to the crowd and said, this person believes that the United States government has committed fraud on all of you and simultaneously wants to exercise his right protected by the U.S. government to state his opinions freely to you. That's what he wished he had said. That was what, you know, one of those, you know what I should have said. So that's a regret. That's a pretty, like, long should have said. Yeah, well, this is a man who wants to get his words right, I guess. Uh, so that's what I got on the regrets. Uh, okay. Two more categories. Good dreams, bad dreams. In this category, does this person have a haunted look in the eye? Something that suggests turmoil, inner demons, unresolved trauma. And you kind of hinted at this a little bit with your man in the mirror answer. Yeah. But I, I'll take it first. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I said bad dreams. Yeah. So I, I think the the loss of the daughter alone um, as as a two-year-old, that just stopped. Full That's stop. enough. Full stop. Uh, lots of near-death experiences yes. prior to the successful uh, Apollo 11 mission. Like really, really near-fatal experiences from what I read. In yes. terms of some of the test piloting. Correct. Uh, as you said, around lots of death in the 60s. Um, and I also just think you see that angle of space for the first time and you see these angles. And there's just too much. There's too much in the head. God, that's interesting. So I was going to say I have nothing to add until you got to that last sentence. Because I do think... I mean, he describes the Sea of Tranquility, that's where they landed on the moon, as beautiful. I'm sure it is. And looking back at the Earth, I mean, the thing is, you know, when I'm falling asleep and I have great dreams, my imagination is drifting off into beautiful places. And he's seen beauty in a way that almost no other human has had the opportunity to do. All of the trauma and pain in his life led me to go to a pretty quick bad dreams but now i'm actually you're saying his canvas is is so much larger than yeah your normal person yeah i'm wondering now i'm second guessing myself on that that would be interesting i think because no it could be like 75 percent of his dreams are taking place in this like lunar landscape right for whatever else you know he experienced in life when his head hits the pillow at night he can think of the moon yeah. And what it's like to be on the moon. 
I'm going to change my answer. I'm going to go good dreams. It's interesting. You know what I'm, I'm reminded of? Um, we can actually make this a personal anecdote. So okay. we went to a widespread panic concert together when we first became friends like 11 years ago. That was a lot of fun. That actually is like the, the moment you really won me over as a friend. It's like, he's into panic? Fuck yeah. I yeah. had so much fun in that concert. This brown guy? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I remember, you know, they had the song, the porch song. How dare right? you? Yeah. They talk about, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the whole like refrain of that song is like having a good time on the moon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's just like sitting. It's the whole idea is to paint this imagery of yeah. just like sitting back and seeing just like the beautiful, the equivalent of beautiful ocean waves, but it's the moon. I mean, that's the thing about achieving something of tremendous exploration. Like the more you see in the world and the, and the further you go and the more, I don't know, environments you're exposed to and, and, and territories and landscapes you explore, the, the more you create a, additional accommodation space in your imagination. Your imagination can go that much further too. Yeah. You know? And I, and I think that, that that sort of relaxing and surrendering and letting go that can happen in that sort of state between, you know, consciousness and sleep, you know, can lead to really good dreams. So, yeah, that's my good dreams argument. All right. Are we going into psychedelics? Is this where we go into psychedelics? It may be. Well, almost. This is second to last category, cocktail, coffee, or cannabis. This is where we ask, which one would we most want to do with our dead celebrity? Uh it may be a question of what'd be a fun hang, or it may be a question of how do we get more at who they are. What do you have? So the one that I'm actually choosing is um, is coffee. Uh, I want to know the opinions of the universe because he's seen it and he saw it at at such an early time. Yeah, I just I want to know what he how he thinks it's going to play out uh, for the next several hundred years. That's kind of what I want the coffee for. Uh, you know, there's this, what we've talked about so much of the theme of this show is the not being a hero type of thing. Right. I don't think I need it from his mouth. Yeah, I, I agree. Don't. I agree. I, I don't. agree. Um, yeah, that's what I kind of want to get from him. And I want it straight laced. And you can you can make an argument for cannabis for that, but that's not, it's, this is an Eagle Scout. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. I just don't think, I think I'm going to get the same answer just with like swirly eyes. If I if he does it with cannabis, um, so that's why I'm going with coffee. Well, I want the swirly eyes. I went with cannabis. You did, and oh, what do you yeah. expect to to access? I just want it to like tell me about the moon. I, I just want tell me about the moon. You know, tell me what did it look like. I, I actually want the whole journey. You're gonna make our eagle stout do drugs. You're goddamn right. <laughs> just this once, you know, and probably you know on a cloud because uh, he's passed away. But yes, I I think. I'm gonna I'm gonna push some cannabis onto Neil Armstrong. Yeah, I want to get high and hear him talk about hurtling through space, looking back and seeing the pale blue dot that is the Earth. Seeing the Earth rise—that's a literal thing. The Earth rise. You're on the moon, and the Earth rises. I mean, the photographs, the movies—they'll never do it justice. No picture ever does it justice. To actually stand there, one of the things that the astronauts who were, have walked on the moon describe is that because the moon's so much smaller, it curves more, and you can see that on the horizon. That's something that can never be captured, and not even in a panoramic, you know, on an iPhone. Right? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it, it, to just put this all together, and this just feels like a nice recap before the Vanderbeek. To have boldly gone where nobody has gone before, to have experienced the most pain that we think can be experienced in a human lifetime, and then to retreat to this sort of symbol of you know solitude and, and, and loneliness. Like uh, there's some real extremes around this man's life. Yeah, which leads me to the last question, Amit: the Vanderbeek. Named after James Vanderbeek, who famously said in Varsity Blues, I don't want your life. Neil Armstrong, do you want his life? Whew, I don't know. Yeah, me neither. Uh, will you walk through this with me? Yeah, of course. So, yeah, uh, the achievement, being the first person, the symbolism, as you said, of what it meant to the country and to the world. That part, yeah, no doubt, right? It's so attractive. 
on the personal side, um, it's so unattractive. It's so unattractive. Yeah. And the other thing that I would also say is he's, you know, he's pretty lame. Yeah. As far as all of his post Apollo choices, you know, of what you could have been if, you know, the, the hero's journey is handed to you. Yeah. And you, you don't take it. And there's nothing wrong. Like I, I admire his pursuit of happiness. And I think that is good. That is desirable. However, it's, I don't know. It feels like a pilfering of opportunity. Yeah. I, 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 me. I, I, well, I mean, I think what I hear you saying is you don't want to be judgmental about his choices, but you're a little disappointed with given the, the, the scale of the accomplishment and what, and the, and the kind of political you, capital and social and emotional and cultural capital. Yeah. And forget just being a senator. I mean, you could be a storyteller of immense proportions. Yeah. Um, so I don't like that. And I think you can take away every accomplishment of mine that I've had or will have in the future or that my soul can imagine. And I think I would trade it all for connection. And yeah. that's not how the soul of Neil Armstrong works, as best I see it. So my Vanderbeek is no, I don't want your wife, Neil Armstrong. Your turn. God, I don't know that I have anything to add to that. I don't think I could top that. Do we expect too much of our heroes? You know, there are people on this show who I've said yes to, and I've been surprised that I've said yes to them. I do think. Do we expect too much? Yes, but there's a trade off. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I, are, and are we judging him for not being more of a hero? I guess is also on my mind. Like, I, I think if I. For not carrying the hero's message? Yeah. Yeah, we are judging him. Yeah. That. I mean, that was, that was, yeah, that, half, sort of in there. that was a that sort portion of, of my no. At which I think he was private and recluse before he stepped foot on the moon. So I think that this was a trait of his that, that may have been immutable. In which case, there's an argument to be made that I'm not sure we sent the right guy. You know, Buzz was that close. Buzz is a fascinating character in a lot of ways. Would it made, have made any difference if Buzz was the first guy? It's just no one would have ever known who Neil was. You put it that way, and it's incredible the amount of importance we place on the first of anything. Because those two men landed on the moon together. And if part of your very persuasive argument for saying no to the Vanderbeek is about connection, weighed against, you know, extraordinary uh, experiences... Uh, I, I, unimaginable experiences and not being willing to trade it. I'm with you. And I do see a deficit in Neil Armstrong's life. And what I've seen of Buzz Aldrin thus far, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe we're not asking too much of our heroes. Maybe I don't need to think about it anymore. I think I'm on board with everything you said. I think I don't want your life, Neil Armstrong. Oh, I say that, and it's sort of hard to give up going to the it moon. It kind of hurts in the it gut, right? It kind of hurts. But it also, it's just weird how you can be unquestionably a great man. Brilliant, virtuous, admired, modest, you know. Uh, yeah, a model, a model global citizen. Yes. But neither of us want that. Yeah, and it hurts to say no, but I think I'm a no. Whew. Wow. All right. Uh, we've arrived. We're at the pearly gates. Your soul has ascended <laughs> to heaven, but that didn't even feel far enough. Uh, so yes. <laughs> like, is that above or below? I was going yeah, to say Neptune, Pluto. I don't know. No, you can't say Pluto anymore. <laughs> Michael, you are Neil Armstrong. You are standing before the Unitarian St. Peter. Make your case. I am forever going to be remembered for one step. It was the first step that humankind took on the moon 
this body that has been orbiting planet Earth since time immemorial. And when I said giant leap forward for humankind, in that moment, I felt like I was representing our entire species. And that's what I've tried to do as a man and as a human. Even though I knew how extraordinary this moment was, I don't think I, I, I recognized the accomplishment at the time or in the years since, and I'm not sure I can help the rest of humanity understand its significance. I did my best to remove my ego to be as selfless as I could, even if people didn't always understand that. It was never about me. Every choice I made, I, I tried to not make it about me. If you think that I succeeded in that mission, then I hope you'll let me in. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Famous and Gravy. If you're enjoying our show, please go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. It really does help new listeners to find the show. We would love to see you on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Famous and Gravy. We've got lots of fun stuff there on our Twitter feed. Also, please sign up for our newsletter on our website, FamousAndGravy.com. Famous and Gravy was created by Amit Kapoor and me, Michael Osborne. This episode was produced by Jacob Weiss. Original theme music by Kevin Strang. And thanks also to our sponsor, Half Price Books. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.